um, it's almost like you can set a, a, a timer. It seems like about this time every year I end up sounding more like Marge Simpson than myself. But uh, it's an honor to, to share God's word with you today. How great was it to have both worship teams together? It's wonderful, wonderful. I encourage you guys to, to participate in Operation Christmas Child. I love the fact that the gospel goes with it. If we were just sending gifts, I wouldn't like it. But the fact that the gospel goes with it is great. And we also have uh, Angel Tree that happens uh, near Christmas time that we do with our food giveaway ministry to minister to kids in our community as well. And so that's something else to look forward to. If you turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13, we're at the end of the book of Zechariah, and it's very heavy in prophecy. And um, as I did last week, I want to just talk about some few things to look for when you're looking at biblical prophecy. Good pointers, good guidance. Um, It can be really intimidating. Either people really gravitate to the prophetic books, or they become petrified and fearful of them. And so my goal is to help you know how to approach these prophetic books of the Bible or passages. Number one, the prophecy always pertains to the people in which it is directly written. So we got to remember that there are certain people at certain time periods in different communities that these specific books of the Bible are written to. And if we understand the culture, we understand the circumstance and situation, then we can understand better what it was meant to say to them. But it's always written to them. And so there's always a direct message to the people in which it's written. The second thing is is to look at specific historic events when those prophecies occurred. So we're looking at the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book of the Bible. Then you have the 400 years between the last book of the Bible and the coming of Christ. And so that's called the intertestamental period. And so we look at different historians. Did any of these events occur within those 400 years? And then we look at the Gospels themselves in the New Testament. Did any of those prophecies, were they fulfilled there? And so instead of just jumping to the 21st century to try to interpret what we're reading, we're looking at the historical context. Number three, be really careful not to equate everything God prophesied to the nation of Israel as equal to his prophecies for the church. Many, especially in the Old Testament, are prophecies for the nation of Israel and don't always equate to, um, to the church as a whole. And I would say one of the bigger dangers in our day and age is we take biblical prophecy and we say it's for the United States. Uh, it's really dangerous to do that. So just be careful. There are times that it does speak to the church, which is the body of Christ that's outside of the nation of Israel and includes the nation of Israel, those that believe. Um, but but you've got to be careful that you don't equate everything uh, prophesied to them as equal for us. So with those first three points, you're thinking, well, what's the point of looking at the prophetic books? And the point is uh, you look for biblical truths and promises that are eternal because God is never changing and his promises are true no matter what. There are truths and things we can pull from the prophetic books that can encourage us and move us forward, even if it's not um, a prophecy that directly relates to us or is intended for us, we can always gather more information on understanding who God is. So let's just remind ourselves as to who the people group that this prophecy is written to. This is written to the people of Judea living in Jerusalem right after the uh, exile, the 70 years of exile. 
and they're trying to rebuild their homes, the walls, the temple. And so God is in the process of getting them to believe by faith that they have a future and God has a plan. And so, you know, when, you're, when your life is in shambles and in rubble and, and you find yourself in a place you never expected to be and you're wondering, you know, what, what the future holds, God's message to them is do not decry small beginnings. And so that is our challenge as well. We got to remember, church, that we are a generational church. And what I mean by that is the decisions that we make, the lives we lead, are not just for us. We clearly know that in our vision, in our heart, that we are here for generations. And some of the tough decisions that we have to make, some of the, the choices that we make, we may not see the full fruit of that in our lifetime, but it should trickle down to our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. Um, and so, so that's part of it, too. Um, now, the way the book is structured, uh, as we've seen through the book of Zechariah, the really earliest chapters are clear. They're speaking to them who are living in that moment. Direct messages, specific individuals are named. But then as the book moves forward, as we get to the last chapters, it definitely is foretelling of future events. And, um, and we'll see that many of them have to deal with Jesus, as we've seen already, that either Jesus quotes from the book of Zechariah or some of the Gospels um, writers or the, the, uh, the epistle writers mention it as well. Um, but these are the messages that the people receiving this letter will need to carry them through the next 400 years until Christ appears. So we're going to read Zechariah 13, 1. Said on that day, a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurities. There's a hymn that I grew up singing, many of you have as well. It's written by William Cowper in the 1700s, and it goes like this, and I'm not going to sing, not with my voice like this, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And I remember as a kid thinking, what sadistic person wrote this? Especially if you've not been in church community. There's a fountain filled with blood and you're singing this with a smile on your face drawn from some dude's veins and you get plunged beneath all this blood. And What is this talking about? Well, the beautiful thing about this hymn, if you've ever heard it before and wondered what he's singing about, he's alluding to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, that there is a fountain that is coming through, through the legacy and the dynasty of David that will lead to the forgiveness of sins. In fact, not just forgiveness, a cleansing of all their sins. Don't miss that word, all. This is a huge promise, especially to a group of people who have lost everything because of their sin. If you read all the the Old Testament books and the prophetic books prior to the exile, they're all saying, listen, stop these sinful patterns. Stop stop chasing idols. Stop stop living like the world and pursue Jesus. Otherwise, you're going to end up where you don't want to be. And so these people who are coming back from the exile, who have suffered for sins, their sins and the sins of others, They're longing to be cleansed of their sin. They don't ever want to go back into exile. And so a verse like this 
is huge. There is a fountain that will cleanse us of all of our sins. They don't want to lose God's presence. So when you look at the New Testament, John 4, you have Jesus taking his, his disciples to a place they don't really care to go to, and that's Samaria. And uh, it's the heat of the day in the afternoon, and they're just kind of, the disciples kind of look around to see what they can get to eat. And as they're hanging out by the well, this woman comes up and starts getting water. And Jesus asks her for some water, and she's like, Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. But in the middle of his conversation with her, he says in verses 10 through 15, he says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring or fountain within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Now, the verse in Zechariah says that this fountain is for those in Jerusalem. But what I love about Jesus, when he actually came, the one who is in the dynasty of David, the one prophesied in Zechariah 13, he shows up in Samaria and says, this spring is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's for the Samaritans, it's for the lost and dying anyone that would receive this living water, that's who it's for. And so Jesus is saying, I am the source of life. I am the living water. But let's, let's just talk a second about the nature of the metaphor, right? In Zechariah, it doesn't say that it's a well. And here Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not talking about a well. I'm talking about a fountain. So what's the difference between the two sources of water? Well, a well, you have to have um, a bucket or something to which get the water from the source. You've got to have the manpower to drop the bucket down, bring it back up without dripping it all out, fill your container probably multiple times so it takes your work and your effort and your ability to gather that water. And it's strenuous and it's tiring and it's not fun. It drains you to get that living water. But in a fountain, what do you have to do? You go to it, and it's gushing, and you just have to surrender to it. You just take from it. You just receive. And so that's the power of the metaphor that we're given, is that God gives freely of, of this cleansing power from sin, this, this life eternal, this fullness that he has for us. And so we need to realize that it's not our work, and it's not our effort, and it's not something we have to do. It's us surrendering to his presence and just delighting in him, and he gushes over us. Let's keep reading, verses 2 through 6. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will erase idol worship throughout the land, so that even the names of the idols will be forgotten. I will remove from the land both the false prophets and the spirit of impurity that came with them, 
If anyone continues to prophesy, his own father and mother will tell him, you must die, for you have prophesied lies in the name of the Lord. And as he prophesies, his own father and mother will stab him. On that day, people will be ashamed to claim the prophetic gift. No one will, be, will pretend to be a prophet by wearing prophet's clothes. He will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer. I began working for a farmer as a boy. And if someone asks, then what about those wounds on your chest? He'll say, I was wounded at my friend's house. Now, anytime the Bible talks about idols, we kind of tune out, right? Because we don't think we can really relate to that. But we do have idols, don't we? We have ideals that we target ourselves after. We have possessions that, that we overvalue. We have those glowing boxes in our home that tell us how to live, tell us what we need to have, that show us the way the world works, and we just sit back and relax and just take it all in. We have idols, right? And so we can't tune out when we hear about these passages. In this passage, Zechariah says, God will erase your idols. And so we have to remember, again, let's look at the context. This is a people group that have lost everything because they have turned their hearts away from God and they've pursued the idols in the land over and over and over again. Idols such as Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Moloch, and Dagon, to name a few. But you also have the gods of Egypt. You also have the Greek gods. And the beauty of this passage is Many of these gods we wouldn't know anything about if it wasn't for archaeology, right? Like literally, the scripture has become true that these gods have been erased and forgotten over time. And so for us, it's like, oh yeah, whatever, Dagon. But for them, it was like, no, this has been a threat to my forefathers. This has been a threat to my family. And, and the, the problem with idol worship, the same problem we have with consumerism, is it causes us to think this is how the world works. I need this stuff to be satisfied. I need to do things this way. And in idolatry, what you do is you try to manipulate the gods to do what you want them to do. But that's not how our relationship with God works, is it? It's not how you pray. You don't have to say the exact right words. It's not that you have to convince God to bless you and not curse you. It's all that we submit to him and trust him and follow him, knowing that he already has a best plan for our life. So the reality of Zechariah saying, I will erase the memory of those gods is huge to them. And so we all have our battles, don't we? We all have our familiar foes and fears that we struggle with. And if you can remember back, those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a lot of years, when you first came to faith, ooh, that was loud. When you first came to faith, that woke me up. Um, there were certain battles and struggles that you, you were not sure you were going to be able to win with. And now, like if you were to, to travel back, you're like, well, yeah, I guess that was a battle that I faced, or that was a struggle that I have. Well, I don't have that anymore. God has the ability to, to take out those foes out of our life. To, to receive a message, not only as a fountain that will cleanse them from sin and impurity, but now the very gods that waged war for their hearts would be erased. This, these prophecies are huge. Um, Zechariah goes into great detail to show how hated 
false prophets would be in their land. You know, even your parents would stab you in the back, right? Now, I need to clarify because that first part of the passage, it, it seems clear that he's talking about false prophets. And in the second half, it seems like he might be talking about regular prophets. I think the whole thing has to do with false prophets. And I'll tell you why. Because it, the last verse alludes to the fact that the person has scars on their chest. And he says, no, no, I got that at a friend's house. I've been a farmer my whole life. What we see in Scripture, specifically 1 Kings 18, where you have Elijah battling the prophets of Baal, that part of their worship practice was in cutting or, or self-deprecating their bodies. And so that would be a part of worship. Those scars would, would, would reveal their past life. And so what you have coming along during this time period historically is that after the book of Malachi is written, there are literally no prophets. There are no new voices coming from God. The, the Old Testament canon, the, the books of the Bible are closed and not to be opened. And so this passage, again, once again in the historical context, is taken quite literally. God is not giving any individual new passage, and they are so protective of God's word that if anybody tries to do it, they're like, no, no, you're, you're, you're going to be killed if you add to God's word. And so there are not a lot of people trying to put themselves out as prophets during this period. And so that's how amazing it is when 400 years later, this guy named John the Baptist shows up wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey, and he's preaching boldly a message of repentance and pointing specifically to a Messiah. And everybody's like, well, this guy's the genuine article because nobody would do what this guy's doing. This is the first prophet that has shown up in 400 years. And it's amazing. It's life-changing. It's dramatic. And so it's, it's huge that, that these outside voices were silenced for this time period. Does God still give the gift of prophecy? I believe he does, but not in the same manner. Um, modern prophets are, are not intended to add to the scripture. There's not going to be any more books of the Bible that come along. There's no more prophets that'll say, I am the book of Nathan and you have to read this. It doesn't work that way. Modern prophets will point you back to God's word. And remind you of God's truth. Now we, we hear that word prophet and we always think of future telling. Like, like this guy or girl is going to look into a crystal ball and tell you what's going to go on. That's, that's as pagan as it gets. What prophets' predominant role, even in the Old Testament, was, was to remind the people of who God was, what he'd done in the past, and what he promised for the future. Every once in a while, there were specific prophecies that God gave them, but their major role was to bring the hearts of the people back from the sinful place where they were and bring them back into God's presence. And so that role is definitely needed in this day and age, right? People with the boldness to stand up and say, no, we're going the wrong direction. We need to hear from God. Um, <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. And Revelation 22, 18 and 19 adds, 
And I solemnly declare to everyone who hears the word of prophecy written in this book, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. And if anyone removes any of the words from this book of prophecy, God will remove that person's share in the tree of life and the holy city that are described in this book. And so, how do we know who are real prophets and who are false prophets? Well, let me just tell you. You're going to see humility in that person. You're going to see teachability in this person. And they're going to be able to substantiate what they're telling you solely on God's word. Now, if they're trying to tell you Jesus is going to come back at this day and then this time, then you immediately know they're a false prophet. Because even Jesus said, I don't even know the day and the hour of my coming, only the Father in heaven. And so when we're wanting to know what the future holds for us, we hold fast to the promises of God's word. Where Jesus says, I'm going to come with this trumpet sound. I'm going to return the same way I left in the clouds of glory with the, with the heavenly army and the dead in Christ will rise first. We know all of those things. And so again, guys, just be careful because we live in a day and age where there is strife and turmoil and fear. And, and so there's a seeking, a longing for answers of what's going to come next. And so we may open our hearts and minds to people who claim to have a gift of prophecy. And sometimes they can cause great destruction in our life because we go to them for a word from the Lord. And it's, it's not God's word. It's not based on God's word. And so go to his word first. That's the teaching point I want to give to you today. Because the canons close, there's no, no addition to God's word. And those that have added to God's word have caused cults to rise up. That's what Joseph Smith did when he, when he claimed that he, he had a vision of an angel named Moroni showing up and, and golden tablets. And these golden tablets he wrote down, and that's the Book of Mormon. And so Mormonism became a belief system uh, because that belief that these modern-day prophets could add to God's word. Jehovah's Witness believe that they reinterpret the Scripture the, the way they want to have their own translation. And so what I want to tell you guys is if you're not going to fall away if you hold fast to God's word. His promises are true. His word is faithful. And he tells us in his word exactly all we need to hear. Maybe not all we want to hear, but all we need to hear. So this passage is a warning to us to be careful how we use our gifting. And so if you have or feel like you have a gift of prophecy... Always, whatever God shares you to share, do it with fear and trembling. All of us that have gifts, whatever that might be, we should always do it in humility to give God the glory. When I preach, when I teach, I will tell you forthright, praise God. Anything that I share with you in power and authority comes from Him. Those of you that have a gift of serving and help, you know, uh, we had food giveaway yesterday. We do that to give God the glory. And so that needs to be our attitude in whatever gifting we have. Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn against the lambs. Two-thirds of the people in the land will be cut off and die, says the Lord, but one-third will be left in the land. I will bring that group through the fire and make them pure. I will refine them like silver and purify them like gold. They will call in my name and I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. 
How confusing would this prophecy have been for them to read? Who, as an as a owner of sheep and property, would take their best shepherd, their best leader, their partner, and have them killed? And then have your sheep dispersed, and then you turn on your lambs. This is weird, right? And so I can imagine over those 400 years, them wanting to know the future. They're wanting to understand the prophecy, and they're looking at this passage, and they're saying, what does this all mean? But then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus himself calls him, himself in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And then in Matthew 26, as he's preparing to go to, uh, he's coming on the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he's about to be arrested there. He tells his disciples this. Tonight, all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Jesus literally quotes Zechariah 13 in that moment to say, all these years of confusion about how what this passage means, I'm telling you right now, I am the good shepherd, and my father is going to allow me to be strike down. You're going to run away. You're going to flee. You're going to abandon me, but it's all for your good because I'm going to become a fountain of forgiveness and blessing through my sacrifice on the cross. He gets to fulfill that. It's a beautiful picture. So what's with this one-third saved and two-thirds will die and... The, those left in the land will be refined in the fire like silver or gold. Well, I think with the first part of this prophecy literally being directed toward Jesus and Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of it, I think the second part deals with Jesus and afterward. One-third and two-thirds. Well, <clears throat> I use that thing called Google. You ever heard of Google? I looked up Google and I looked up some statistics. I mean, what percentage of the world's population is Christian. Looked at lots of different sources. You want to go home and do it, you're welcome to do that as well. And right around a third of the world's population professes to be a Christian. Now, I know, statistics, you know, you, you've got people that are claiming to be Christian and they're nominal Christian, and then you've got other people like me who don't do any polls because I don't want to give out any information about my personal life to any, any outside source. And so you've got people, for whatever reason, who won't say one thing or another. But I find it interesting that right now, around the world, about a third of the world's population claim to be Christian. But what we can hold to in this passage is what Jesus is saying. It's that a third of us will live in the land, and yet it won't be easy going for us. We're going to be in the fire, just like everybody else. And in that fire, it's not meant for our destruction, but it's meant for our refinement. And so, I don't know what the days ahead um, look like for us, but I read passages like this, and it says, the end is worth the process. We will be going through a process of refinement. And, uh, and Jesus says, the Lord isn't really slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. See, this isn't a prophecy of God wanting to kill two-thirds of the people. 
God, in his foreknowledge, knows how people receive the message. In fact, it's somewhat encouraging to me that it's possible that a third of the world's population will choose Jesus in the end. That's kind of exciting. Do I want all of them? Absolutely. But there's something to this that God is saying, be prepared because there's battles ahead. Well, how do we apply this to our life? Three things. Jesus is our perpetual source of cleansing for forgiveness and eternal life. And so the simplicity of the gospel is we just need to remain and abide with him. Are you struggling today? Have you been in the word? Are you struggling today? Have you really opened up your heart and life to Jesus? That's the beautiful thing about a shower, right? How great is a shower after a long day's work? Several of you uh, do camping or glamping or whatever else. But how great is it after you've been out in the woods for a few days to come home and get some hot water and wash those woods right off of you? It's great. Blaine's like, I'd rather have the woods smell on me. Um, it's great. And that's what God's presence does for us. It's refining, it's cleansing, and it's available. He's a fountain gushing for you. Number two, Jesus has the ability to end the false teachings and prophets in our life. Instead, in turn, we must hold fast to God's word first and foremost and not add to it or detract from it. You, I think more than any other day and age, um, you have more voices coming at you from more directions than ever before. There is not a place you can go to where you're not hearing some sort of message. And, and, and I think parents are getting wiser to this. My generation, TV was still fairly new, and so it was... It, it, Parents weren't as protective or understanding, but it's very clear now how many worldly message are, is coming through, not just in our shows, but in every single commercial. And God said, I want to protect you from false prophets and false teaching. I want to remove those from your heart and life. And again, that comes back to making God's word a priority, going to him as a source of all truth, allowing his word to tell you and to teach you. And then finally, um, Jesus died for the world, but not all will receive him. Jesus, following Jesus isn't easy, but it's going to be worth whatever we face for us to be his people and for him to be our God. He's chosen us. He's chosen us. He's chosen the world. He died, as, as John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So do not believe that God didn't choose you. He's chosen you. Now it's on you to choose him daily and to walk in his abiding presence and to stand in victory. Are days ahead going to be tough? Yes. Holy smokes. I thought parenting was tough. Now I'm getting teenage girls. Next level, right? And then some of you are saying, well, wait till they become adults. Uh, so it, it, it's... Life doesn't get easier, but it's a refining process. And I can testify that every year that God allows me to live, he continues to refine me. He continues to reveal things that he needs to change in my heart and life. And so it's a process of becoming pure. Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for its power to change and transform. And even though my voice was imperfect today, your voice was absolutely perfect. 
And so, God, I pray that we would hear your message for us. It may be just one statement said or, or one illustration given, but, God, someone in this room needed to have it. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would choose to believe you, that we would not seek other sources or, or we would um, allow false prophets to give us their perspective on how life is, but your word would be our starting point and our ending point. In your name we pray, amen.